Hi, everybody. Welcome to the conversation with St. Patrick's Studio. My name is Brian Cannon. I'm the Director of Evangelization and Adult Formation here at St. Patrick. And today I'm joined by Richard DiCarlo, retired Phoenix police officer and social justice outreach uh, associate for St. Patrick Catholic Community. And full disclosure, I've known Richard for about 17 years now. He looks old. I don't. Welcome, Richard. So happy to talk to you from Thank a distance. Thank you for that introduction, Brian. <laughs> You're looking it's younger a, every day. It's the, it's the least I can do. We both got home haircuts. You we guys do. be the judge. <laughs> Mine's a fresh one. <laughs> Very good. So, Richard, how long have you been on staff now at uh, St. Patrick? I've been here at St. Patrick's for a little bit over a year now. Um, I started in May of uh, 2019. And I know a lot of your work has been focused on that, that balance, what we call the two feet, um, justice and charity, charity and justice, and kind of walking with both feet. Can you describe that just a little bit? Sure. So here at St. Patrick's, we do walk with both feet in the uh, social justice and, uh, and outreach uh, area. We have the charity side and, and we have the, the justice side. And uh, basically, in a, in a nutshell, the charity side are the, the drives that we do the, um, the time that we take to go to organizations to volunteer, to uh, the soup kitchens, um, our Christmas drives here uh, at St. Patrick's. And then on our justice foot, we also participate in areas of awareness and education, getting involved with groups um, outside of the St. Parish grounds, other organizations, other interfaith organizations, not only just in the faith aspect, but in areas of, of government as well. So Richard, this has not been your career trajectory forever. <laughs> and uh, you're not an Arizona kid. You come to us from Southern California, a town called San Pedro, for anybody who's uh, familiar with it. It's a, a beach town, a big port right there uh, in Southern California. And so I want to kind of tell your story a little bit, uh, how you get on this trajectory that leads you through the police department that leads you now into working with uh with social justice so your parents they sent you to a catholic high school now there was a catholic high school about two miles down the road from your house in san pedro but that's not the one they sent you to right can, can you talk about that dynamic a little bit and where you went and, and what that meant for you of course yes there was a, a catholic high school about uh two miles from my house if that and uh, my parents, I have four older brothers, and my parents chose to send all of us to Loyola High School in downtown Los Angeles, which was about 35 miles from, from our house, door to door. And it meant uh, getting up early, getting on the uh, public bus, taking it to downtown LA, transferring to another bus, and then landing on the, on the grounds of Loyola High School. But, but at least traffic in, in uh, LA is always really good, right? Oh, it's always perfect. So, we, you know, we zoomed right up there. <laughs> so we would leave the house about uh, seven o'clock for an 830 start. And on rainy days, we were lucky if, if we uh, got there on time. Much to the chagrin of the dean. We ended up in the dean's office several times. Yeah. For being and what, what, were, what were they up to sending you there? What, what was that about? You know what? At, at the time, um, I was really kicking and screaming. Uh, I didn't understand why they wanted to send... Uh, me to a high school that was 35 miles from from our house when I could have very well gone to the local Catholic school down the road if they wanted to send me to Catholic school. So 
But now looking back on it, you know, the, the Jesuit education and, and the Jesuit training is about formation. Uh, it's about going deeper than, than who you are and becoming more selfless than, than selfish. And of course, at the time when you're a teenager, when you're 14 to 17 years old or 18 years old, um, we haven't fully uh, developed, you know what they say about the, the frontal lobe, it just hasn't developed yet. And um, like I said, it was not the, the most enjoyable time uh, and looking back on it, uh, I'm glad that it happened. But when I was going through it, it was about becoming what the Jesuits call a man for others. It's about being open to growth. And it's really the very, very beginning stages of that development um, about what our response will be, what our faithful response will be as we, as we get older. And um, I did make it through just fine. Um, but I really didn't start appreciating it mostly in, until my, my senior year. I started having a little bit better understanding. And what, what prompted that understanding for you? Well, you know, when, when you go to downtown LA from the, the beach count, the beach city that I grew up in, um, I, was, I was exposed. It was just more about not just the education. It was more. It was about um, being in communion with those in society around you. It was catching, catching that bus and riding the bus with people that I had really never associated with before. Um, we had, there was no commonality. It was, everybody seemed different. Everybody looked different. They, many spoke different languages. And as, as I developed and we, we got to that senior year, I took a California history class that encouraged us to go pick an organization and spend some time at that organization through the semester and then come back and report on your experience. And lo and behold, um, I had chosen uh, LAPD at the time. This was in the 80s. And my, my task was to go on a ride along with LAPD and report back to the class of what I saw and my experiences on, on that ride along. Now, now simultaneously, uh, senior year, we had taken a, what's called a kind of a career assessment class uh, or, or test, I should say. And it kind of guides you about where, where you might want to study in your college years. Where do you want to start guiding, guiding your life? And having said that, my, my scores on my math and science level were about as baseline as you can get. I mean, <laughs> it was basically what they say in medical terms, flatlined. So <laughs> I don't want you to feel so you know self-conscious about that at no, all. And no. I won't bring it up in future conversations. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm lucky I got through my chemistry class because the priest that I took biology and chemistry with had gone to high school with my mom. So that's that's about <laughs> I was basically begging for a passing grade in those areas. But but my my results in um my results in the area of service were were sky high. They were off the charts. So that was kind of the beginning stages. Okay, so then you have this experience with Ride Along, LAPD. You file that in the back of your head. You go off to Loyola Marymount University. Uh, talk about that experience. Right, so finish high school. I can leave downtown LA and get back to my quote-unquote comfort zone, the west side of, of LA. Uh, it's near the beach, literally a couple miles from the beach. Um, there was girls there. We had as an, Loyola High School is an all-boys school, so you know, things were starting to blossom and open up again. So, you know, life is good. Um, 
But with college, of course, comes independence. And how do you handle that independence? And with that independence also is opening, like I mentioned earlier, that open to growth. Well, am I, are you opening yourself up to learn more than just sitting in the classroom? So at Laurel and Marymount, uh, the teachers there and the priests there really encouraged you to think for yourself and, and, and think and speak and not just regurgitate what you're learning in the classroom setting, but to uh, use, your, use your mind and your thought processes to um, delve, delve deeper into things. And there was a, so again, like I mentioned, you know, life was good. I was kind of back in my comfort zone. But then I took a sociology class there and we had a speaker come in that, that talked about crime statistics in, in greater Los Angeles. And I, I found it very interesting and I, I started listening a little bit more. And the next thing I know is I'm volunteering to um, go to the juvenile hall in downtown Los Angeles, which is another 30 miles back east again from, from the west part of LA. And sure enough, I found myself um, volunteering there at, at the juvenile hall, sitting across from individuals who I had nothing in common with. Um, these were uh, young men who were tattooed and uh, totally different family background than I was raised in. Uh, I had no understanding really whatsoever of what their background was about until I started to engage in conversation with them. I learned um, how they were raised. I learned that maybe they had a parent, maybe both parents in prison or in jail. Uh, maybe the abuses that they had gone through. What brought them to where they are at right now sitting across from me? Uh, there's a story behind that. And part of my volunteering was just being able to listen and to offer some type of companionship. Uh, for individuals who do not get that at home. Yeah. And I, I think so often the encounter with the other, these what we would call border crossing experiences where we're outside of our comfort zone, they really expand the, the horizon of our own vision. Because I know for you, um, and I, I hate to say thinking outside the box because it's like the biggest buzz phrase of the last 20 years and it's completely overused, but your family has a, a family business. It's the, the seafood business. And so I think probably as you're going through your training in the back of your mind is like, well, okay, I'm going to go work for the family business when all this is done. But now you start to have these encounters that you're filing into the back of your mind. So how do you, how did those things collide for you? Like you have this tug to like, okay, I'm going to go back and work with the family or maybe I'm being called to something a little bit different right now. Right. So uh, that's a good point because not only was my world colliding in that area, um, as far as exposing myself to something different in the downtown LA area, um, that's at, at, at Loyola Marymount is where I met my, my wife, Debbie, you know, we've been married for 33 years. Um, and having said that, Debbie came from a much different background than from where I came from. Well, first of all, she was born and raised in Arizona. Who would want to live in Arizona, right? None of them have been here for over 30 years, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, Debbie, Debbie had also challenged me to um, delve deeper into things, you know, for expanding upon your thinking outside the box comment. It's, it's delving deeper. 
and to uh, look at where the person is. It's using step into their shoes, right? Those, those, those two feet, using our feet in a different manner, step into their shoes and be able to um, help respond to where they are coming from at, at that point. So as I graduated, I, I got into the family business um, and there's really no pressure to do that from my parents. So I, I just want to make that, that clear. My, my parents have always uh, encouraged us to follow our hearts and where, the, where our hearts are leading us. But I did get into the family business for about six years. And I continued to delve a little bit deeper into uh, going on different ride-alongs too with the, with the police department. I, I wanted to experience that a little bit more. And about five or six years into that, something was calling me to uh, be of service. Um, nothing wrong with business. Don't get me wrong. It just wasn't for me. Um, you know, this is this experience um, that we're talking about now in social ministry. You know, this is this is my story. Everybody's going to have their different story of ministry and discipleship. Um, but this is the path that I decided to take. And um, so I did. I took I took the leap and. I uh, took the test for the Phoenix Police Department and got hired in, uh, in 1991. And Debbie and I moved to, to Phoenix. Um, we left, I left my comfort zone of Southern California. And that even included a, a, like a start and stop too, because you know, you're, you're on the police department, but you feel called back to Southern California. Can you talk about how sometimes when we're on the path that there's some twists and turns and how that looked for you? Exactly. I think that, uh, so for, for me, I was on the department for three years. And then uh, what had happened was I, I graduated from the academy. And I will say the academy is, is difficult and, and it's a 20-week process. But I don't think it really fully prepares anybody for what one is about to be exposed to in the real world of, of things outside of those sterile grounds. Um, all of a sudden now you're, you're thrown into the, the depths of society that I had never really even imagined. I mean, I, I had heard about the different dysfunctions and the, the different brokenness uh, involved in, uh, at the street level. Uh, but there is, no, there is no being able to uh, truly understand that until you are exposed to it. And it was fast paced. And a lot of information is coming at you at, at one time um, once you graduate from the academy. Not only are, are you trying to understand departmental policies and everything that goes with that, I mean, a, a book that's three inches thick with, with everything you can think of, but now you're trying to, um, now you're being exposed to things anywhere from you know, homicides to suicides to overdoses, abuses, homelessness, prostitution, um, gang uh, situations. You are wearing so many different hats and trying to understand all these different things that, are, that you're being exposed to in a night from night basis um, that it's hard to wrap your arms around. And sometimes in, in, in social uh, ministry and in service, you dip your toe in the water and then you, you might have this fight or flight type of experience. And I chose to, uh, I chose flight after my third year. I thought, you know what? 
I've done what I wanted to do. And I think it's time to move back to California. And I um, had resigned from the department, moved back to California for a whopping three months. <laughs> and something, something happened when I was, when I was there. And, and I want to acknowledge Debbie here. Thank, thank you for your patience here. <laughs> um, there was something stirring with inside me that's hard to explain. But when, you, when people say they feel a movement in their heart, this was, I, I truly felt a movement in my heart to come back and complete what I had put in place to do, um, but I had stepped away from it. But now I was ready, to, now I was ready to wrap my arms around it and continue on with a path that I really think that God wanted me to follow. Yeah. And that was getting and, back into law enforcement. You know, when that, what, what a great lesson for us, because just because you're doing the right thing doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the comfortable thing for you. And, and you, and there might be starts and stops in this pursuit of justice that we do. It's going to be uncomfortable. It might even feel wrong sometimes, which is probably what prompted you to like, Okay, I'm going back to California because this doesn't feel right. But then when you have that space to evaluate, your heart will lead you back to, to where you're supposed to be. So, yeah, I, know, I thank you for sharing that with the vulnerability of that, because some people think that if they don't, if they're not all in all of the time, then their heart's not in the right place. But that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes we just need some, some space to discern how God is leading us, even when it's uncomfortable. So you come back to the Phoenix Police Department. And at this time, it's really the beginning of what we would call community policing, right? And, and maybe taking a different approach to, to how you encounter people. So how were you able to act in justice, with justice, to those that you were encountering during that time? How were you empowered? Absolutely. So you're right. That's when community-based policing, it started in, in the 80s, but now in the 90s, it was really going full bore. And once I got back on the department and about a year later from there, I joined what's called a, a neighborhood enforcement team. The neighborhood enforcement team is a team within each precinct that works on longer term projects, but not just in the area of enforcement, that it also encourages getting involved uh, in the community uh, itself going to the neighborhood meetings, meeting the neighborhood leaders, um, getting out of the car, getting out of that shield around you um, and walking through the apartment complexes where people are really experiencing difficulties and encouraging you to understand what their plight might be. What's it like to live um, in an area that is plagued night after night after night um, with whatever it might be? It might be a drug infestation. It might be um, problems with, with robberies. It might be, it's just quality of life that when, when we go home at night, when I went home at night, I could lay my head on my pillow and I, and I would feel comfortable that I would, um, everything would be fine. And my kids would be fine. My family would be fine. But I started having a better understanding of what people are faced with day after day, but not just what they're faced with, but maybe what the root causes might be. I started delving a little bit deeper into root causes and what actually, um, what actually, what systemic issues are there that put people in the place where they're, where they're at. So we also partner with bureaus throughout the city to help quality of life issues for people in the neighborhoods that we were working in. 
And, and having done this, and our team worked, worked very, very hard in, in the area of town where, where I worked. It was mostly in the central part of, of Phoenix along the I-17 corridor there. Um, we ended up receiving a community-based policing award for the efforts that we had put into the area where I worked. And we were recognized for that. And, and I'm very, very, very proud to say that the team that I was working with, we all brought our gifts and talents to this team. And we worked very, very well together. And it was recognizing each of our gifts and talents so that we could better bring these, um, these levels of organization and and communications to the community around us. And I imagine making a lot of those neighborhood connections and relationships just makes going to work in an otherwise difficult situation that much better, right? You're connecting with real community members, you're forming real bonds and working on real projects together. And, um, but on the flip side of that, I imagine also sometimes you're working in neighborhoods where you feel like you're trying to bail out the ocean with a bucket, you know? And um, how do you keep from the feelings of being paralyzed in that kind of a situation when it seems so helpless? Right, so good question. And I think that in this area of my, of my career, this time of my career, I started to realize that um, you can't go in thinking that you're gonna save the world. I think every new police officer goes in with that attitude. And that's a great attitude to have. And you should have that attitude. But you also are setting yourself up uh, for burnout. And I think that is important in the area of social ministry as well. I think when people do charitable things, um, I think that if they do the same thing over and over and over again and get frustrated by why are we doing the same thing over and over and over again, um, you can set yourself up for burnout. So I started uh, changing my attitude a little bit in, this, uh, in, a, in a couple ways. I wanted to bring my faith life into my work. Now, how do I do that? Well, by doing that, that means not just looking at my faith life as I'm going to church on Sunday, I'll listen to the readings, I'll receive communion, see you next week you know, the, the, the whole rote routine about that. And that's easy to get into. But for me, um, I needed to go a little bit deeper. And that's when, at the time, when, when the Just Faith program was, was here, um, it was a 33-week program, we had a small cohort of about 12 people looking deeper into different social issues in our lives. And how do we respond to that? So I, uh, and we're talking about social issues anywhere from, you know, immigration to homelessness, um, environmental issues, um, fair wage. I mean, it was, a, it was a pretty wide gamut of things. So I was able to bring that into my work. I took that from, from home and brought that into my day-to-day -day encounters that I had with individuals. And I think an important thing in ministry uh, and even in the work that I was in, is that we have to look at the small victories. We have to maybe not set ourselves up for a 14 win and two loss season is victory um, because we're so in tune to that, right? 
in the area of ministry and, and in law enforcement, sometimes a two and 14 victory is a victory is a winning season. Um, those two people that you encounter for that week or that day, and you may have changed their lives is, is a victory. And that's what discipleship is about. You know, I know that, I know that father Eric says many times, um, discipleship is, is messy and, and it is messy because we're talking about using our, our five senses. You know, we're talking about, uh, listening better. Uh, we're talking about seeing the brokenness, um, touching with our hands, dining with those who are hungry, um, and literally smelling the atmosphere that people with brokenness are, are uh, dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So talking about that kind of collision between the faith and the work that you were doing at the time and bringing your faith life into that, uh, let's talk about the story of Tom. So who is Tom and, uh, and what does he mean to you? Um, so Tom... Um, Tom was an individual. We had been working at a neighborhood and we received a complaint of a drug house and we had watched it for a while. And, um, the usual comings and goings, uh, from the drug house. And we eventually made contact and went inside and we met this individual. Well, Tom had uh, an issue, uh, with, with heroin. And um, he was living in a house that uh, he was renting. He eventually was kicked out of the house um, by the owner. And I kind of lost track of him. Um, Super nice guy, very respectful. And, but he just had this, this, this problem that was um, consuming his life. So I lost track of him and um, ran across him couple years later and we would always talk and again very respectful always would call me officer I encouraged him to call me by my first name but he never did and then um, lo and behold about a year before I retired I ran into Tom again behind a retail um, market and he was in bad shape Tom had a um, bandage on his arm um, he was sweating profusely. He was in pain. He was bleeding from his arm, and he, he looked miserable. And I didn't even recognize him initially. And I said, Tom, is that you? And he said, yeah. He said, that's me. And he called me Officer DiCarlo. It's me. And he told me that he had been diagnosed with cancer in his arm yet he was running into barriers with the system of trying to get a doctor's appointment, getting the surgery that he needed, and anything that could, could help him um, uh, with this situation. So that's, that's when I ran into Tom again. Um, and that's when I knew. Uh, I knew I, that I needed to put the pieces in place of the um, education and the awareness I needed. I, I know I knew, I knew that I needed to advocate for somebody that couldn't advocate for themselves to be his voice and to use the connections that I had, um, that I had partnered with during, um, the just faith process 
And that's what I called Circle the City. And uh, we brought Tom to Circle the City. And instantly I could see that Tom, um, there was almost like this light shining on his face because he knew he was going to be getting help now. So from there, um, we set up a time for him to come back the next day. Um, Circle of City is a respite center that helps individuals after they get out of a hospital. And so I said, um, Tom, how about tomorrow morning at 7.30, I pick you up where I found you. I tried to find him someplace to go that night, but he didn't want to. <laughs> so I said, Tom, how about I pick you up at 7.30 in the morning? Picked him up at 7.30 the next morning and drove him down to the Maricopa County Hospital area, 24th Street and Roosevelt. And we got out of the car and Tom started jutting for the, uh, for the building. He had this resurgence of energy now. I think because I, I was with him. Um, <laughs> and I said, Tom, just let me do the talking and, and we'll get through this, okay? <laughs> he, was, he was all geared up, right? He's like, I got the law on my side now. I'm gonna, people are gonna listen to me now. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it must've been the uniform that, that got him uh, this, this, this newfound energy. We went upstairs to the, to the doctor's office and um, I spoke to the nurse there and I, and I explained the situation. And the next thing I know, Tom had an appointment with a doctor the following week. And one thing led to another and he got the surgery that, that he needed and then went to, to circle the city uh, for his respite care after that. So it seems to me that you had some leadership at the department that really empowered and encouraged you to be able to do the right thing. You mentioned before that you've got the, you know, the three inch standard operating procedures. And sometimes the stuff that you encountered probably was outside of those standard operating procedures, but you had the leadership that empowered you to do that. Um, right now, that's so important in our society, for our society to know because we, we see the examples that have been given to us of officers who are not doing the right thing, right? So what can um, that leadership do? How important is that leadership to empower those officers to be able to do the right thing, uh, to, to act with justice? Right. So that three-inch book I mentioned, um, a lot of those rules in there probably for somebody that didn't, didn't do the right thing. <laughs> so rules need to be made. But um, again, those, those, are, those are guidelines about day-to-day -day operations. And um, so the unwritten rules or the unwritten book is uh, our humanity. And I was fortunate enough to have supervisors who encouraged um, us to literally, uh, I had one supervisor, his quote was always, just do the right thing, just do the right thing. You know, sometimes I would sit down in his office and I would say, I'm thinking about doing A, B, and C. I know that um, you know, it's not written in the book about it. And his, his response would be just do the right thing. And this was one of those things. Um, I, the, the day I, I ran into Tom, I did call my supervisor and I said, Hey, here's the situation. I'm going to be you know, off, you know, off the, the grid for a while. And it was nothing but encouragement, uh, from him. And I was fortunate, fortunate enough to work for many, many supervisors that, um, that had the same attitude. And I will say, uh, for the most part, 
the people that I worked with in the police department, um, they're just not taking that, that job on to, to put on a uniform every day, to hop into a patrol car and go, go, answer, um, go answer calls and go home. Uh, there's, there is a certain calling of, of our humanity to uh, being able to um, confront people um, with, that are in situations that are maybe uh, didn't just happen today. It, it might be generational. Um, and so we're being called in to help them uh, wade through an issue uh, and they're looking for answers but it's challenging because many people are put in situations that might be um, hereditary or might be generational. And that, and that, that, that poverty that they're in, and I'm not just talking about monetary poverty, I'm talking about poverty of, of addiction, <clears throat> poverty of mental illness. Um, there's, it's a whole wide spance of, of poverty that, that we're confronted with every day. And so Having realized that, the the only right thing to do is to, like I said earlier, um, have that two and fourteen season today. Make a difference in this person's life that can help them get through this rest of this day, because many of the people that we encounter aren't looking down the road six months from now or a year from now. They're trying to get through the next six hours or they're trying to get through the rest of the day. And once, once you realize that and you put away your, your, your judgment, um, it helps you as an individual uh, to better serve the person that you're serving. Um, it helps you minister better to that person. And it's not always perfect. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying... I always did it perfect because I didn't. And um, it, it comes from, it comes from experience. It comes from matur uh, maturation of understanding and awareness. And it helps you develop that wisdom. So that, so that I, or whoever the senior officer is, can mentor those beneath them as well. Um, you develop uh, a certain amount of compassion with that. And I, I always have a favorite quote from, from Father Greg Boyle, who actually taught me in high school as well. Um, he runs Homeboy Industries in, in, in LA. <clears throat> Once you have that wisdom and understanding, you develop more compassion. And, and, and to Father Boyle's quote, he says, um, here, is here is what we seek, a compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. And I think those are very profound words. And I think that for uh, any individuals in the area of service, um, those are words that should be, that should resonate uh, with them in their ministry. Richard DiCarlo, I will have to say that I will have to admit that we are lucky to have you at St. Patrick's. And uh, I know I like to give you the business just because you know, we've known each other so long, but honored to work with you. And it's right, just do the right thing, right? So thank you so much for joining us on the conversation today. It's been a pleasure from St. Patrick's Studio. We shall see you next time.